Well, a very warm welcome this morning. How beautiful is it outside? I'm um, thinking I brought the Queensland weather with me, um, but it's an honour and a privilege to be with you today. And because we're just a small group, I just thought, well, when Pastor Ben said that there's a few people who need a checkup from the neck up, and can you do a psychological consultation? And so as I ask you to lie down on the couch, and I, I won't ask any questions about your mother, but maybe, just maybe... Um, we need to examine how healthy we are, especially with Ben's declaration that the Knights are going to win. I just The thought that immediately came to my, mind is, is if you're going to be knighted, you have to first be brought to your knees in order for that to, 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 to take place. So, so I'm, who knows? But uh, I hope we're in for a good time um, this morning. And I am excited to talk a little bit about this theme of healthy me and healthy we and to be honest, if I was to take this microphone down onto the streets of Penrith and go up to any unexpected you know, person walking on the street, a little bit like those, those YouTube or TikTok videos that people do these days and ask random questions of strangers. And if I was to ask kind of like that classic old psychologist word association game, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the term mental health? What do you think the most common answer would be? If I was a betting man, I reckon the most common answer would be depression. And closely followed by anxiety, which would be closely followed probably by addiction and then some kind of relationship issues and so on and so forth. But my question is, why is it that the first thing that comes to mind when we hear the term mental health is actually mental illness? If we ask the same question of physical health to some random stranger, hey, what's the first thing you think of when you hear the term physical health? Uh, chances are they wouldn't say global pandemic <laughs> or, or broken leg. No, they would describe vibrancy and energy and, and I, I feel good in my body. So why is it that when we hear the term mental health, we think of pathology and illness instead of actual health? And one of the reasons why, maybe, because psychologists like myself, we don't actually advance health. What we tend to do is fix problems. So if somebody has been adversely impacted by, you know, unfortunate life events, and let's just say they started at the neutral position of zero, and then due to whatever it was, they got knocked back into minus in their life, well, the role of a clinical psychologist is a little bit like a GPS system, you know, in 300 meters, turn left. We just guide a person back to their original starting position, which is their intended destination. We call it restored, rescued, rehabilitated, fill in the R word. And, and, and so now they're, they're, they're mentally healthy, right? No, wrong. Imagine if we use this same analogy with, with finance. If all of a sudden, because of you know, inflation or, or due to an adverse business deal that didn't go very well, and now you've been knocked back into debt, let's just imagine that somebody comes along and says, well, that's terrible. Look, I'm going to do you a favor, and I'm going to either help you um, get out of debt, or I'm going to service that debt on your behalf. And now you have been restored to your original position. How are you doing? Are you financially wealthy? No, you're broke. <laughs> you've been restored to zero. You were in minus and now you've got nothing. Before you had less than nothing and now you've got nothing. <laughs> and oftentimes that's the way in which we think about the gospel. It's like, well, we've been sinners and we got knocked back and we've made poor choices and we've kind of screwed up, messed up our lives in a, in a variety of different ways. But thank God for Jesus who has paid the ultimate price. He paid the penalty for our sins so that we don't have to. And as we often sing, he paid the debt. He restored us to the original starting position of zero or neutral. And so where are we? We're set free, but not just free from something. We've now been set free for something or to do something. Now we can step into health, into our life, and make something off of it. 
And so it reminds me of a movie that I saw not so long ago. Um, I can't quite remember what it was called, Van Helsing or something like that. It was a, it was like an ancient, either Nordic or Scottish uh, name. And, and the movie, I'm not recommending it necessarily. It was quite gruesome. Um, I, I, maybe it was taking place in the highlands of Scotland. And there was these rival tribes who were fighting each other. And, um, and so a little bit like out of David and Goliath, um, the clans would select one champion and the, the, the two champions would fight each other rather than everyone fighting. And, and the winner of that battle would take all. And so in this movie, um, one of the clans had stolen the champion from another clan and they were getting him to do their fighting on their behalf. But he was a slave. He was, he was held captive. So when the fight was over, he'd be put back into his cage. But as the story goes, with the help of a young boy, one night um, they escape and they're making their way over the highlands of Scotland when they chance upon a band of Christian crusaders who are heading for the, for, you know, the Middle East. And they want to know, is this guy friend or foe? And so the young boy explains that this one-eyed warrior, um, he was formerly held captive, but now he'd been set free. And the chief asked a question. And when that question was asked, it flew off the screen and hit me full force because I thought to myself, that right there is the gospel. As the chief asked, so now you've got your freedom. What do you plan to do with your freedom? So now that we've been set free, now that we've been restored, or as a psychologist might do, help you with your mental issues, uh, now that we've been restored, rescued, rehabilitated, now what? Maybe, just maybe, it's time to step into healthy me. Not just absence of problems, because the same is true for healthy we. A healthy relationship, whether it be father, son, mother, daughter, whether it be um, husband, wife, whether it be in-law, whatever the relationship might be, even work colleague, a healthy relationship is not merely the absence of problems, but rather it's the input of good stuff. It's the characterization of laughter or purpose or passion or connection at some level. Let's seek health, not just the absence of illness. Are you with me this morning? So if we're going to do this, it might be wise of us to start back here in this place where we are struggling, because oftentimes if we're going to go build, a, you know, something, if we're going to build an investment portfolio, it would be wise of us to first maybe get out of debt so that we can actually can create a little bit of generated wealth so, there's, so that we can multiply into the future. So, so of course, one of the detractors or one of the issues that we're contending with today is, of course, stress. And so let me ask you. Um, if you um, believe that stress is, of course, a bad thing because it impacts upon your health, uh, physical and emotional well-being, it, it adversely impacts upon your performance, your capacity to, to work, um, it also impacts negatively upon your relationship. So if you believe that stress is bad, well, according to uh, empirical scientific studies, you are correct. Stress is bad. But at the same time, if you believe that stress is actually good, that stress is good for your health, that it enhances your emotional well-being, that it actually improves your performance and productivity and can even um, enhance your relationships as well, well, according to empirical scientific research, you too would be correct. So hang on just a second. How is it that stress can be both bad and good at the same time? Well, according to these studies, it's not so much as to whether or not stress in itself is good or bad, but rather it's what a person believes about stress that makes all of the difference. That if you believe, no, this stress is great for me, well, it's going to be great for you. And if you believe, no, this stress is terrible, well, indeed, it's going to be terrible because whatever you believe is what you kind of get. Whatever you water in the garden of your mind will grow. So what are you watering? Now, of course, it's easy for, for us to say, you know, stress is good, so just believe. And you're like, yeah, but I believe, I believe, I believe. But kind of it's a little bit of a fake faith, isn't it, when you, when you deep down feel like this is terrible what's happening to me. So my question is, how can we harness stress to our advantage? I look at stress as a little bit like um, wind on the high seas. 
If you're out and about in your sailing boat, but there is no wind, then you are going nowhere in your life. However, as the wind starts, as the breeze starts to blow, and it picks up the skirts, as the sailing term goes, the sails fill with air, and it starts to move the boat. You can go places that you've never been before. But also, to the other extreme, if there is a storm or a squall that gets whipped up, well, then you're going to have to pull down that sail, and as we would say, batten down the hatch, and once again, you are going nowhere in your life as you are simply riding out the storm. And chances are, with an audience of this size, there are some people here this morning who are already riding through storms. You are holding on for bare life, whether it be a financial issue or you are holding on by the skin of your teeth, like with this, this relationship that I'm in right now, or you're holding on in terms of your own mental and emotional well-being. I don't even know if I want to live anymore. I'm just holding on. It would suggest, therefore, that there are different levels and layers of stress. And if we're going to have a healthy me to, to step into a healthy we, then, of course, we would do well to understand what those are. So if you are a note taker and if you are wanting to learn and use this as a bit of professional development for yourself today, the first type of stress is what we call critical in other words, there can be a critical incident that can take place. I mean, there's a windy road coming up to this mountain. And as you're heading down that road, I mean, it's easy to get into an accident, especially if you're on a motorcycle. But those roads were pretty cool to ride a motorcycle, aren't they? Anyway, I digress. And so, so the idea is, is that there could be a critical incident, and that is highly stressful, even if it's not for you, even if it's a loved one that got into an accident. That critical incident is highly stressful. But at the same time, stress is critically important. So we classify stress in psychology as being a little bit like a bell curve, whereby if you have no stress or low stress, you are what we refer to as bored. There's, no, there's nothing going on. But as your stress levels start to increase, so this is the stress now coming this way, you'll notice at the same time, performance and productivity also increases. So stress is critically important. If I wasn't just a little bit stressed here this morning, a little bit nervous about speaking to you all, well, then I wouldn't care. And so not only would I be up here talking like I don't care, not, and not only would I be bored, but so would you. In fact, I've already seen a few of you fall asleep, so I <laughs> guess it's uh, already quite boring. But, but the idea is that I, I don't want you to fall asleep. I want you to enjoy it. In fact, I want you to get something out of it. And so I, I want to bring information that's going to be equipping and empowering, not just infotainment, so that it can roll off. Oh, yeah, it was such a lovely morning. What did you get away with it? Well, I got, I got a nice coffee. No, I want more than coffee here this morning. So I'm a little bit stressed because I'm nervous and I want you to get something out of this. But, 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 but if I'm too stressed you're looking at me and, and you know and I and I made that joke about the knights going down on their knees and the pastor might beat me up later and I like like uh, of course my performance starts to detract and of course if if my stress is not contained very well well, it might lead to other forms of stress. It's a little bit like a, a domino effect. If I'm not performing very well and people are starting to walk out or people are starting to complain and that it might affect my future, um, you know, invitations and then it affects my finances and so there's this domino effect and then it affects my mental health and then my relationships because I can't pay for my... F ah, this is a nightmare! And that leads us to the second type of stress which is called compounded stress. Compounded stress is where it's not just one thing that's happening in your life. It's not just a, a financial or a health issue, but rather there are a variety of different things going on. So, for example, if you said to your teenage daughter, hey, I want to make sure that you are home by 9 o'clock tonight, and it's now 9.30, and so she is still not home. And not only that, but as you call her, the, it goes immediately to voicemail. And now your mind is ticking over. Like, what? Like, is, hang on, is, is she in trouble? Like, is the phone dead? Is, there, is, is, she, is she not able to answer the phone because she's in an accident? And then just as you are trying to, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to put this out of my mind, and so I'm just going to open the mail that came in today. And then, 
whoa, there's this unexpected tax bill that you just did not see coming. And you're like, what? How on earth am I going to pay for that? And then your husband or wife walks in the room and says, how dare you break this thing that was belonged to my grandmother and you just like knocked it off the table. so careless. And you were like, I did not do it. And now you're in an argument. There are multiple forms of stress happening at the same time. And so I often refer to this as our frustration tank or our stress bucket. And it's important to note that each and every one of us has a level of stress in our bucket or our frustration tank. But as these various different sources of stress come in, the 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 the, the phone call, the, the, the unexpected bill, the missing daughter, whatever it might be, well, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that your stress levels are going to rise. But there is only so much that you can take. There's like a line at the top, which is like the line on the kettle or the line on the water jug, uh, I mean, the, the, the iron, should I say, where, where, you know, where you pour water into. And, and there's that line that says, do not fill past this point. Because if your stress levels exceed this point, you will enter into what we call the moron zone. (laughs) Which essentially means you have taken more on than what you can handle. Where you now start splashing and spilling out and over onto other people. Such that you walk into work and you're like, and the people, your colleagues, they say, good morning. You're like, hi, how are you? Fine. And they're like, what's wrong with you? And, and, And you're not even aware, but you just got too much going on and you can't process you can't function in the way in which you normally would because you're up to your eyeballs in frustration or in stress so classically in psychology or at least in the day and age in which we live people say well what you need to do is you need to put like a tap into the side of your bucket so as to relieve some of that frustration, so as, so as to not overflow. And so we call this coping mechanisms. And there are functional coping mechanisms and perhaps less so functional. Um, oftentimes the classic Australian, at least Penrith stereotype might be, I go down to the local watering hole and I drown my sorrows. And so I'm going to take comfort in the bottle um, because it helps me cope with it numbs some of the pain and numbs some of the pressure and helps me forget. And so it's a functional coping mechanism in the moment, but not so necessarily functional for your family, for your income, for your physical health and well-being and so on and so forth. There are other functional coping mechanisms. Sometimes people go, I need to exercise more. I need to get out and I need to relieve my frustration by expending energy. In fact, I saw on the back of a Time magazine not so long ago an advert um, that that said, uh, if you ever find yourself in the shopping center, it was a Nike advert, by the way. If you ever find yourself in the shopping center and you're in the eight items only lane, and the person in front of you clearly has 13 items. And then at the bottom it says, have you been for your run today? Nike. In other words, if you're feeling frustrated, if the smallest things like a person in front of you with 13 items is ticking you off, and that's just like because you're already here. And that little thing has just tipped you over the edge because normally it shouldn't bother you. Those little things go, oh, person in front of me, obviously they're in a rush, they've got some of that, or they're being very creative in terms of trying to hard to look at 13 items, or they're just bold and brave. I wish I was so bold and brave. (laughs) So assertive, just no no inhibitions. Like, that's great. Like, wow. And so instead of out of my insecurity, how dare they? I go, no, I could be like that one day. And, And so... And so we would normally just be water off a duck's back. But when we're so mm, miffed by the small things, well, your stress levels are already too high. And so maybe there needs to be effective coping mechanisms. And I say that's the day and age in which we live because pretty much the entire mental health budget and infrastructure in Australia in terms of our public health system is focused on coping, which is a little bit like um, taking everyone to mental Um, uh, defensive driving school so that if you get an emotional flat tire um, the first thing that you need to do is put on your hazard lights to let everyone know that you are in trouble and I reckon in this day and age we've got that one down pat 
Like, we, we are happy to let everyone, I'll let everyone know on social media, you won't believe what kind of day I've had today. And so I'll go to my friends over coffee. Oh, my God, you don't believe this man that I'm living with. Oh, my God. And so we are happy to tell about our problems and let everyone know. In fact, we, in our, to, in our day and age, we even describe ourselves as our pathology. Uh, we say, I am Robbie. Hi, I'm an alcoholic. And so we might go, well, that's a good thing because you're owning your issue. No, you're identifying yourself as your issue. Hi, I'm anxious, I'm depressed, I'm ADHD, I'm fill in the blank. Why would we do that? Maybe our English language has something to do with it. So if you go to pretty much any other language in the world, um, you describe your feelings or your emotional state as something that you are experiencing. Whereas in English, we describe it as ourselves. For example, I say, oh man, I am so hot. Whereas if you were in Germany and you said, I am so hot, people go, you got tickets on yourself, man. You think you're good. Like, no, in German, you would say, ich habe heiß. I have hot. I have a hot experience. It's not that I am hot. No, I have hot. Hot is with me, but hot is not me. But in our English language, we describe ourselves not only as our feeling, but as our pathology. I, uh, can you imagine if we did this with our physical health? Hi, I am broken leg. People would look at you and go, yeah, that, that's not all that's broken, man. Like, there's something else going on with you. And, and so that right there should be an alarm bell for us. Hang on, what are we doing? Why are we putting this emergency flashlight on to let everybody know I'm having problems? Because the truth of the matter is, if you are telling your problems to more than three people, you're not looking for help. You're looking for attention. And we're living in a day and age that the more worse off you are, well, the more social credit you get, the more empathy, the more sympathy, the more kindness maybe people will show you. And, and so that's good because it's more attention on me and it makes me feel good, although it is nothing more than scratching a rash. It feels good in the moment. And as soon as you stop scratching, how did it work out for you? See, somebody's scratching right now. And so, and so I, I, how did it work out for you? It doesn't. It just makes you feel good in the moment. It feels good. And we go and govern our lives by feeling. Well, if it feels good, it must be right, right? No, wrong. Don't follow your feelings. Inform your feelings. This is who I am, and this is what I'm going to do. So we put the emergency lights on. The next defensive driving skill might be, okay, um, so, so, so use the handbrake instead of the footbrake um, so that you don't shred the tires too quickly. And because the tire is flat, it's not going to be as responsive, so you might want to oversteer a little bit. These defensive driving skills are good. Don't get me wrong. They may well just help save your life, save you from crashing in that moment. But if that is all we ever do, and just keep on driving, then we are little more than a codril cold and flu ad. I, I don't know if you remember that ad from like way back in, in the day. Soldier Ron with codril, soldier Ron, soldier Ron. I mean, we don't play that ad anymore since COVID. Like, you know, you got the flu here. Take these tablets, go back to work. No, no, like take, go stay home, like stay away from people. That's the kind of the emphasis of today. But the codril cold and flu ad was hilarious because if you're sick, all you need to do is take these tablets that will make you feel a little bit better. It doesn't fix the sickness. It just makes you feel. It's like coffee. Coffee doesn't wake you up. It just blocks the chemical messenger that tells you that you're tired. So you're still tired, but you just aren't aware of it. In other words, coffee is deception. And so is codril cold and flu. I feel good. I feel good. But <coughs> I feel good. And now everyone else gets sick. But I feel good. Soldier on. If all we ever do is just cope with our issues, then it's only a matter of time before we crash. At some level, we also need to learn how to pull the vehicle over, get out of the vehicle, and appropriately fix the source of the issue. Fix the tire. And if we can change the tire, we can jump back in that vehicle and drive on with confidence. So we're not just coping with our issues, 
so we can bring ourselves back to zero, but we are now going places in our lives with confidence because I've effectively resolved the issue. I've been set free from something so I can be set free for something, for a purpose in my life. And the last type of stress is called chronic. And chronic stress is where my stress is not only compounded, but it doesn't let up. It's unabating. It doesn't go away. And after a while, it becomes too severe. So if your stress is too much, too severe, and it goes on for too long, you end up in a state of chronic stress, and this is now where it starts to impact upon your physical health and well-being. It leads to weight gain, aging, degenerative disease, all sorts of um, negative health consequences that, that we don't necessarily want more of in our lives. And so my question is, well, well, okay, so is there something we can do about it? Yes, but before we do, we need to also understand that stress operates on a timeline. So there is a timeline of stress, which is called historical stress, goes all the way through to present stress and then all the way through to future stress. So historical stress is characterized by things that have happened in my past, um, maybe a betrayal, an accident, a traumatic or critical life incident, and I, I'm, it's still affecting me. And you know that you're affected by it when you're in your down, quiet time and it comes to mind. Oftentimes when we're trying to sleep. So you go to sleep and all of a sudden those memories come back. And you start oh, nursing, cursing and rehearsing all of the bad things that happened. And you just can't get rid of it. You can't shake it from your head. It's like sticky thoughts. They stick to the forefront of your, of your mind. And then you dream about it all night long. And then you wake up in the morning and sure enough, slap to the forefront of your mind the same thoughts. Like, how do I get rid of this stuff? Historical stress is commonly correlated with depression. Then on the other end of the spectrum, we've got future stress. This is things that haven't even happened yet, <laughs> but you're anticipating that it's going to be negative. So, for example, it might be um, an exam that you have to sit or, um, you know, Pastor Ben asked you if you could come up and give the closing remarks um, for this <laughs> seminar or for this conference here today. And you're like, closing remarks, like I have to stand and speak in front of the people. Public speaking is the greatest fear known to humankind. You know that more people are afraid of public speaking than they are of dying. <laughs> Which suggests if you're at a funeral, you would rather be in the coffin than the person giving the eulogy. And so this is stressful. This is stressful. It hasn't happened yet. But you might be sitting there thinking right now, what am I? And you're not paying attention to a word I'm saying. You're focused on what am I going to say? How am I going to say? How are people going to like me? Oh, should I start with a joke? Oh, no. What if the joke falls flat? What if they say? Oh, that's a dad joke. Oh, no. Okay. Stress, or it might be, oh, I've got to go and confront that person, or I've got that person at school or at work who is just nasty and they're just a bully, and I have to, I've got to go, ah, oh, like I just don't want to go to work on Monday. I just like, ah. And so you're anticipating a future event that hasn't yet happened, and future stress is strongly correlated with anxiety. But there's one in the middle, and that's the one that we are contending with uh, more often than not, and it's called present day stress, and it's often characterized by pressure. For example, this um, conference started at 9 o'clock this morning, or country time, 10 past. And, and so, so you, you thought to yourself, okay, so I'm coming up from Penrith, and um, it takes me about half an hour usually to get there. And so if I leave at 8.30, 8.40, um, I should be good. I'll be arriving right on time. But, but let me leave at 8.30 so, so that I can, you know, maybe even grab a coffee um, beforehand because I know it's not going to start for another couple of minutes. So I said, it'll be, it'll be good. And, uh, and so... At about 8.25, you start getting ready. And you're like, okay, so I've got my phone and I've got my, my jumper because, you know, it's Sydney, it's cold and the Blue Mountains are colder up the higher that we get. And, uh, and then um, you go, where, where did I put my keys? And you might even ask your family members, hey, um, did you see where, where, have you seen a set of keys lying around? Like, I can't. I can't find my keys. And, and they're like, nah, sorry, I didn't see I didn't see so You're like, hmm, that's strange. Where did I put my keys? One minute passes, two minute passes. And with each minute passing, you're speeding up. Like, where did I put my keys? I couldn't find my keys. I got to, because like the time is running out because I'm going to be late. And then I walk in and then the pastor's going to look at me and say, oh, you're late again. And then I'm going to go, I'm going to And now something transpires. Love leaves the building. When you are under pressure, you cannot be loving at the same time. 
Because this pressure, this time pressure, is putting a squeeze on you, and as you speed up looking for, where where can I find my keys, your dialogue starts to change. Previously, you said, hey, have you seen my keys? Now you'll be saying, where did you put my keys? They were there on the table. I'm sure I put them on the table. You moved them when you were cleaning up. I know you did. Now, where did you put them? And and you start finger-pointing at other people. And they're like, I didn't take your keys. And now you have an argument. You always take my stuff. You're always moving the... Are you actually looking for your keys? Or are you scratching the rash? It makes you feel good in the moment to blame somebody else, but it doesn't help you. It doesn't actually help you. So let's consider this for a brief moment. There was a guy in the 17th century. um, His name was Daniel. And Daniel came um, from the country of Switzerland, where all good things come from. Um, Swiss chocolate. Great watches. Uh, the trains run on time. High on a hill, there's a yodeling goat. Something like that. And, and of course, uh, Daniel came from a line of family members who were famous mathematicians. Uh, so when I say famous, I'm not sure if a little bit famous. Like his dad and his uncle both either helped to found, invent, or, 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 or come up with a theory of um, uh, probability uh, and uh, invented calculus. Pretty major, you know, advancements in, in the field of, of mathematical science. And so now Daniel was at university and he was studying, you guessed it, mathematics. And, and so people are like, whoa, man, your uncle did this and your dad did this. Daniel, what are you going to do? So needless to say, Daniel was under just a little bit of dim, 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 under pressure. Like he was under so much like pressure. Like what are you going to do? Like the expectations are huge. And so Daniel, he went on to study pressure. And Daniel, you might know him by his last name, Benoli, came up with the famous Benoli's principle in physics, that as velocity increases, there's a corresponding change in pressure. It's how we used to theorize that airplanes stay in the sky, that as they take off, as they have velocity, well, the pressure underneath the airplane is going to be high, so it lifts the airplane into the sky. So as long as there's velocity um, and wings, the airplane has the scope of, of keeping on flying. And, and so we might have learned this in high school, but, but Daniel went on to study not just airplanes. Uh, he actually specialized in hydromechanics. So in other words, liquid and water. And so he came up with another theory that's less well known, but this theory is possibly even more important in our day and age, especially as it relates to mental health and emotional well-being. Um, This is called the Venturi effect, not to be confused with the Ace Ventura effect. That would be a whole other effect for another seminar. But the Venturi effect, if you've never heard of it, basically says, as an inviscid flow of a non-conducting fluid, i.e. water, um, increases in velocity, there's a corresponding change in pressure. It's pretty much the same as Benoli's principle. But for those of you who went, what? Let me explain. So if we have a pipe and there is a body of water that's flowing in this pipe, in this direction, but then all of a sudden the pipe becomes constrained or becomes more narrow, what do you think will happen to the velocity of that water? No, it's going to increase. You've got a whole body of water that needs to get through a smaller period, so it now needs to go even faster. And so as it speeds up in this channel, my question for you is, do you think that the pressure of the water will increase or do you think it will decrease? Hands up if you think it will decrease. Hands up if you think it will increase. Okay, most of you. So you might even remember this uh, when you were a kid and you um, went to spray your sibling or your neighborhood friend with the hose. And so you constricted it even more by putting your thumb over the end of the hose to make it go now even faster. And you might even remember how it felt right here against your thumb. You could feel the pressure. And that is why you might be forgiven for thinking that the pressure increases. There's only one gentleman who put his hand up to say, no, no, the pressure decreases because according to the Venturi effect, as velocity increases, the water pressure must decrease. In other words, the molecules themselves have to 
relax in order for it to flow faster. This is the very reason why whenever there is an emergency, if there was smoke billowing out of the corners right now, the fire marshal of this place would stand up and say, ladies and gentlemen, please remain calm. We're going to exit this building. Please walk. Do not run. What? Building's on fire. I'm out of here. No, ladies and gentlemen, walk because the slower we go, the faster we'll get there. As we remain low pressure, as we remain relaxed, we will all successfully exit this building. Otherwise, there's going to be a log jam at the exit there and we will all die. So when next you're in a high-pressure situation where you're, I can't find my kids, I don't have you, and you're speeding up, just take a moment and say, I'm just going to stop. I'm going to take a seat. I'm going to close my eyes. And now let me just retrace my steps. Okay, where did I last have them? Okay, so I came home from the gym. I, what did I do next? I came inside. I went and put my towel in the laundry. I bet the keys are in the laundry. And as you go to the laundry, sure enough, there they are on the kitchen bench. It took you all of 30 seconds to find your keys because you slowed everything down and your brain switched back on. Here's the point. The more emotional you get, the less intelligent you become. If you want to be smarter, then you need to lower some of the pressure, lower some of the emotion, and especially as it relates to our relationships. If we're having an interaction with somebody and it's starting to get heated, well, what on earth are you thinking to think, no, you come back here. We are not finished yet. What are you thinking? Actually, you're not thinking. (laughs) That's the problem. You're just governed by emotions and you're scratching the rash and it feels good to feel want to get validated and you hear me out and I don't, but it doesn't actually resolve anything. Research shows that if couples are in an argument and, and, and they're fighting with one another, when their heart reaches a certain number of beats per minute, per minute, it's impossible for them to find a resolution for the argument. And so researchers have done experiments where they've been watching behind like a one-way mirror and they're not necessarily listening to or watching the argument, but they're monitoring their physiological levels, the blood pressure, heart rate, those kinds of things. And and as they see the heart reach a certain number of beats per minute past the no-go zone, um, they burst in the room and say, excuse me, excuse me, guys, um, thanks for participating in our experiment. We would like you to continue the argument in just a second, but we're having some technical problems. Uh, so here's a magazine, and here's a magazine. Please just don't, don't argue for a second. Just like, w- we're going to fix the problem, and as soon as the problem's fixed, like, we're going to tell you, keep going, keep arguing, because we're, you know, studying arguments as the psychological. And so they go back in, and they watch as their physiological levels start to decrease. And when the heart is beating at a normal rate and they're physiologically calm down a little bit, they come back in and say, hey, we've fixed the problem. Keep arguing. Thanks. And they go back in and watch as couples successfully resolve their issues. So when next you're having an issue with somebody and you feel like saying, no, you come back here. We are not the Bible says. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. The sun is set and now you come back here, we're going to deal with this. Thing. I don't, sorry, I don't know why I went to an American accent there for a second. But, but um, it, it, just stop for, for a second. And in fact, maybe even start in a different way. Go, go for a walk with one another. Because when you're walking and you're breathing and you're exercising, your body starts to release endorphins. Endorphins sounds like dolphins. <laughs> and you've never seen a depressed dolphin. The dolphins are always happy. They're like, ee, 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 ee. they're always laughing. And so if you've got laughing dolphins all in your body, you're going to feel good. And it's hard to feel bad when you feel good. And so as you're walking and you're talking, you are much more likely to resolve your issues because you're keeping your emotions in check. But oftentimes you'll notice that as you're walking and it starts getting to that serious point, you stop. And you're like, no, tell me that again. No, keep walking, keep walking, because as you're walking, you get in the endorphins and you don't get the emotion. So this is what's happening. And if you walk away from nothing else from today, but just that one thing, the more emotional I get, the less intelligent I become. Don't be dumb. Be intelligent. Be who you were designed to be. And let's raise that by lowering the pressure, by calming the farm, by just sorting this emotional regulation out. Now, it's easy to say. It's a little bit like quoting scripture. Be anxious for nothing, but in all things, you know, rejoice in the Lord 
always. I love those verses because we love to quote them in church. We just don't know how to do them. Be anxious for nothing? How do you mean? Rejoice in the Lord always? Do you mean like always or just like most of the time? Like, like, like be generally more positive than... No, always. Let me, in fact, if you were guessing and starting to question it, the Bible says, let me say it again, just for good measure. Rejoice. Well, okay, but how? How do we do that? Well, in the 11 minutes that we have left for this first session, I'm glad you asked. Let's talk a little bit about how we do it. Okay, so as my whiteboard is becoming increasingly murky, um, <clears throat> oh, whoa, 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 let me not be stressed. <laughs> let me be uh, smarter, not hard. Oh, hang on, this is a thing over here. Oh, oh it flicks it out oh, here. I gotcha, I gotcha. Okay. Slow it all down. It's okay. All right. Now, in order to understand this, I'm going to need to um, invite uh, Pastor Ben. Can you just come to the stage just really quickly? Um, I just need to um, uh, use you as a model, if that's okay. So, so would you be able to look at these beautiful people this morning? I'm just going to do a portrait of you, if that's, if that's all right. All right. Uh, take, your hat off. Take, take your hat off for a sec. Yep. Oh, yeah, very, oh, even nicer. Like, woo-hoo. Okay, okay. All right, here we go, here we go. Okay. More hair. Does someone say more hair? Okay, so this is this is what I see from you. What do you think? A little bit, a little bit of a likeness. All right, all right. Go ahead. Grab a seat. We just, we just like that. Yeah, and oh, it left me hanging. All right. Okay. So, so this is what I see on the outside, but I am assuming and believing by faith that Ben also has one of these on the inside. We call it the human brain. Now. Do you have one of these? Okay. That's <laughs> a question. Like, how do you know? Have you seen it? Oh, so he's also operating by faith. Um, the things, you know, believe but not yet seen. Okay, so, so at the top of the spinal cord, we have a part of the brain called, um, well, I like to refer to it as the light bulb of the brain. Technically, it's called the brain stem, but it does all of the things for Ben that he doesn't actually need to think about. So when he's um, breathing, he doesn't need to go and in and one and two and out and one and two and in. No, it just happens automatically. When he's digesting food, he doesn't need to go, okay, now round the corner and down the slippery slide. No, it just happens automatically. When Ben is growing his um, short little hairs on his head, he doesn't need to go, okay, just a second, I'm just going <laughs> to squeeze some. No, it just, it just happens automatically. But around the brain stem is a part of the brain that's technically referred to as the limbic system. Um, it's part of the mammalian brain in terms that it is common to all mammals. And I'm just gonna put a big E in it because it largely represents the emotional brain. This is the part of the brain that has all of our primal drives. If you're hungry, you go and eat something. If you're tired, you go and rest or you pick up your iPhone. And so um, it, it kind of it prompts us by feeling to engage in certain behavior. But there's another part of the brain over here, um, right behind the forehead, and not to turn this too much into a biology lesson, because I know it's complicated, especially this part. It's called the frontal lobe. I know, very complicated. But this is, this is basically where logical, rational thinking takes place. This is where wisdom lives. So when it's 9 o'clock at night, and Ben is feeling a bit peckish, and he goes to the, to the fridge, and he sees one last slice of chocolate cake. The emotional brain, it's a little bit like Fred Flintstone with the devil on the one shoulder and the angel on the other shoulder whispering into his ear. And the devil says, go ahead, you know you want to. But the, the angel on the other side of the brain says, but Ben, you've already had three slices tonight. <laughs> if you have a fourth slice, it's going to go to your waist, mate. And then the devil chimes in, like, yeah, it's either going to go to your waist or it's going to go to waste. So just eat it already. And now he, Ben is in a tug of war. The question is, who will win the tug of war? If you don't learn how to regulate your emotional brain, the limbic system will win that battle every single time. 
It is a fight, a battle for supremacy between these two different parts, between the logical, rational brain, which is where wisdom lives, that says, this is what's best for you, and the primal cravings and urges that says, yes, but this feels so right, it must be right. And yet, there's a part of you that knows it's wrong or knows that there's better for you and wants you to make a wiser decision. The question is, well, how do we regulate this? Well, we need to understand that this logical, rational part of the brain is important for survival. So we can't just cut it out. It's essential. It helps you survive. Why? Because it processes two experiences. One's called pleasure and the other's called pain. Pain is considered to be a threat to your survival. So whenever you are in a negative interaction with somebody, if you're not feeling very good about yourself in terms of feeling depressed or, or anxious, or if you're feeling bored or lonely or, or, or agitated or stressed or even tired, these are all forms of pain. The, the brain is processing this as, as pain. And, and if pain is a threat to your survival, well, it needs a solution, and its number one solution is pleasure. Pleasure helps to momentarily fix the pain. And, and that's why pleasure and pain are processed in the same part of the brain. And, and sometimes we think, hang on, pleasure and pain are, are at opposite ends of the spectrum. Surely they should be processed in different parts of the brain. But that's why, like the divinals sing, there's a fine line between pleasure and pain. And you know this to be true. You know this to be true. I mean, I, I, I think about some of the cultural diversity that we have I in this room. We've got Rina from Indonesia, and, and she will take herself off for some randang. She'll, she'll take herself for some spicy Indonesian food, and she's already like, oh, yes, that is a problem. What are you doing, Rina? You are putting fire in your mouth. It burns. It hurts. But you like it. Why? Because there's a fine line between pleasure and pain. It burns your mouth, and yet it's exciting, and it's exhilarating, and you like it. It's spicy. And so that's why sometimes, you know, when you're working at the desk and your spouse comes behind you and starts digging their thumbs into your shoulder, giving you a shoulder massage, you're like, oh, yeah, okay, a little bit lower, a little bit to the left, and you are asking for more pain. Why? Because you like it. There's a fine line between pleasure and pain. And so if we've got some kind of pain going on, oftentimes we'll give in to some kind of pleasure so, so much easily um, than, than we otherwise normally would. And, and then your brain quickly learns, aha, you see, this pleasure, it's essential for my survival. And so the moment that you say, I'm going to go on a, and then you say that awful four-letter word, D-I-E-T, the day you say you're going on a diet is the day you find yourself in the bakery ordering three extra serves. <laughs> Why? Because your brain is going to fight you like it's never before. before. If you, the brain basically wakes up and says, hey, what, what did you just say? You're taking away my pleasure. <laughs> Over my dead body. I need that pleasure. It's essential for my, for my survival. And so your brain fights you. So here's a golden trick. Don't ever say, I'm not going to. Just simply say, I'm not going to yet. So the brain is like, I'm not going to yet. Oh, okay, but we still might, right? <laughs> yeah. But most cravings or temptations to engage in pleasure only lasts for between two and seven minutes. And I want to add that the scratching of the rash, especially when it comes to negative thoughts, it's a little bit like a mouse on a tree wheel going around and around and around and around and around. It's lots of motion, but no progress. It feels good because it's like scratching a rash. Negative thoughts, aka depression, is a form of addiction. We scratch the rash. I feel so bad, so what do I do? Let me put on some sad music to make sure I continue feeling bad. And so let me scratch this rash. And so I like, but it's a temptation. It's a craving. It's what I long to do. Even the Bible talks about it. It does our heart momentarily good to play melancholic music when I'm feeling down because it brings the tears. And the tears actually make you feel good. What is, what is up with that? Well, there's a fine line between pleasure and pain. It feels good to feel bad at some level. So if we are governed by our feelings, well, the limbic system will win every time. And you are an animal. Or you can tap in to this thing called human. It's the part of the brain that makes us distinct from the rest of the animal kingdom. 
where you actually get to use wisdom to override the primal drive of feeling. Don't be governed by your feelings. Inform your feelings. I am in charge. I am behind the steering wheel. The bad things that happened in my past are like the waves behind the boat. The waves do not drive my boat. It's the captain at the helm that determines where I go next. If you're always looking in the past of the bad things that have happened, it's only a matter of time before you crash because you are not looking where you're going. I want to be in charge here. How do I take control? Well, if most cravings and temptations only last for between two and seven minutes, what if we just doubled that time for good measure and said for 15 minutes, I'm going to renew my mind. Instead of nursing, cursing, and rehearsing all of the bad things that have happened, I'm going to immerse it in the love of God. I'm going to reverse it and disperse it from my life. How do I do that? Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let me say it again. Rejoice. Oh, you mean be happy? No. That would be the Christianese interpretation of the verse. Rejoice is not an emotional state of being. Rejoice is an activity. It's something that we get to do irrespective of whether or not we feel like it. So here's how it works. Here's the thought. I hate my life, whatever it might be. There's an accompanying feeling that goes along with it. I feel down. I feel bad. Automatically, your body is going to be chiming in with certain hormones, chemicals, electrical activity, which is going to govern your behavior um, or your performance or your action or whatever it is that you do. And whatever you do, you end up reflecting on so if you're in this negative feedback cycle where negative thoughts, negative feelings, negative hormones, chemicals, electrical activity, negative behavior, I had an argument, and then I reflect on that, so stupid, how dare you, so dumb, so idiot, no, 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 now feeling bad again, and the body chunk. And so it's like driving a screw into a, uh, like a screwdriver into a screw, and it gets deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper until all of a sudden you're stuck. And this is called depression. So how do I unscrew it? Well, most people say, all you need to do is just think positive. And if you can think positive thoughts, then you will feel good. And if you feel good, your body will chime in with the right hormones, the right chemicals. You will behave in a really good way, perform well, act well, do well, be well. And then you'll think, oh, I'm so wonderful. And then you have recovered from your depression. <laughs> the only problem is it doesn't work. If you were up here on stage and you were giving a presentation, you're shaking like a leaf, and then somebody, a well-meaning Christian, comes along and says, well, the Bible says rejoice in the Lord always. So just rejoice at the opportunity that you have to serve these wonderful people. Or if they said, oh, I attended this Dr. Robbie seminar, all you have to do is just think positive, and, and, and you'll feel good, and then your body will chime in. The person will hit you. Why? Because they can't think positive in this moment. That's the problem. If I could, I would. Which is why it's called depression and not just feeling momentarily down. No, it's a thing. I'm stuck. I'm like, I can't get the freaking thing out. It's just, it's it. So what do we do? Well, Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Let me say it again. Rejoice. It's not an emotional state of being. It's an activity that we get to do. Let's just imagine for a second that you have a friend who's feeling a bit down and out, and you want to be that good friend that comes alongside them, but not their psychologist or their counsellor. And so you think, they need social engagement, I'm just going to get them out of the house. And so you call them up early Sunday morning and say, hey, I was just thinking of you, you want to go for coffee? And the person's like, no, I don't want to get out of bed. Like my one toe hit the ground, not too cold, and straight back in again. And, and so I'm like, and, and, and I don't want to go out. And you're like, oh, but I just... Like, I really wanted to hang out with you this morning. If I, I, but I understand. If you don't want to go out for coffee, I guess I'll just come over for coffee. I'll see you in 15 minutes. Bye. And they hang up. And you're like, what? Oh, man, I have to get out of bed. I have to do my hair because they're coming over. And so you just get yourself ready in time. And, and then and they come over. And, and, and they, they say, hey, don't worry. You stay. I'm going to make the coffee. Now they go into your kitchen. And they're like, now, where's the coffee? What? Nescafe Instant. You cannot be a Christian and be drinking instant coffee. You're like, no, we are going out. And since you're already up and dressed, come on, let's go. And so as you're walking down the streets of wherever it might be, and, and you're, you're walking to the cafe, but because it's early Sunday morning, oh, the cafe's either too full because everyone's there, and, and you think to yourself, hey, I know, I, actually, um, uh, just City Church is just down, is just down the road. It's like just another 10 minutes, and they have got a cafe right next door. And I know that they do really good coffee. And so let's go there. And so we are out in the morning sunshine and the morning fresh air. 
Our, our eyes are being activated by the early morning light, activates the, pitu uh, the pituitary gland uh, and the pineal gland, and, and it helps to secrete serotonin in, in our brain. Serotonin is the well-being chemical. And, and then I'm exercising, so endorphins are going through my body. So, so I'm engaging in a certain behavior that's changing my physiology. There's a process that's taking place here. And when I am changing my physiology, by default, I'm reversing these arrows and I'm feeling a little bit better because endorphins are running through my body now. And so, and so we arrive and there's coffee and the coffee's great. And then all of a sudden we hear this, oh, the church is just starting. Like, we're here anyway. We might as well walk in. And so whether it be you or your friend, like, walks in the back and goes, oh, and the people, the greeters, good morning. And you're like, way too happy. It's like, like not even, like, it's like, what's wrong with these people? You don't understand because you're feeling depressed, but, but they're so happy. And, and so you finally, you come in, you take a seat, and then the worship leader says, would you stand to your feet? You're like, I just sat down. And then, all right, and you stand to your feet, and your arms are folded, and they're all singing. And so I have one, the lady over here, their arms in the air, like, no one scored a goal. What have you got your hands in the air for? And, and uh, so you're standing there. But by song number two, something happens, and you can't explain it. And it's with your right foot. And it just goes like this. And you're like, what's happening? Like, what's, that? what's, what, what's going on? And by, by song three, you are actually getting into it because as we rejoice in the Lord always, it changes something in my physiology which makes me feel good. And now my mind is ready to receive the word of the Lord as Pastor Ben gets up and he talks about renewing the mind. Don't be conformed to the likeness of this world, just coping with our problems. But what if we were to be transformed that's made completely new how through the renewing of our mind uh, yes this is the holy grail but it is not the place that we start that's the pathway to unscrewing the screw to get free from so that we can get free for or to do something and as we receive that word there's something that shifts it goes on to say be anxious for nothing, but rather present your requests and make them known to God with thanksgiving. It's interesting. Thanksgiving is a form of rejoicing. And you count your blessings one by one. Despite every bad thing that's happening in your life, it's like the reset button on your device. You push the on-off button for five seconds and the entire thing goes zing, and it reboots. You've just hijacked your brain and taken back control by simply counting your blessings. I'm counting my blessings. And now I'm changing my physiology, changing my feelings as I rejoice in the Lord always. And it's interesting because there's this passage in verse 8 that says, meditate, finally, brethren, meditate on the things that are right and pure and good and just and whatever is praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Because if you do, there's a hidden secret tucked away in verse 7 that says, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. It doesn't make sense. What just happened? How did I hijack my brain and take back control? I'm not suggesting that if you are on antidepressant medication or you're you know, seeing a therapist that you should now sack your therapist and flush your medication down the toilet. But I am suggesting, what if we also gave God a go? Because the Bible is like one big mental health book that teaches us how to live our best life. It is for freedom's sake that Christ came to set us free. What if we actually, not just were hearers of the word, but doers of the word and applied what he said? And a peace that surpasses all understanding will guard our heart and our mind in Christ Jesus. This is just but one key to be able to unlock authentic mental health, to create a healthy me. And when we come back from our break, we'll explore a healthy we. Hope you got something out of this morning's session. I saw the keyboardist come up, trying to, you're like, you're seven minutes over, we'll just, you know, make some music to give you the indicator. Oh, thanks, it's good, it's great. Give you. Um, we're going to take a short break, and Ben's going to come up in just a second. I, I just want to, before we go, I, I know that we are talking in trivial terms sometimes about um, mental illness, and if you are struggling in the area of mental illness, my goal is not to make light or to oversimplify a pathway, especially if you've been wrestling for a long time. 
this is a complex issue and, and you do need you know, professional care and support if you're going through deep, dark challenges. Um, I don't want to in any way make light of it. But there are some practical skills and there are some solutions and genuine, there is genuine hope at the end of this tunnel for you. And because I've, this is my arena, I've been working in this space for 30 years. And so can I just encourage you, um, don't just dismiss it as, oh, yeah, just another motivational seminar no um, you get to do something if you want to you, you get to be the change in your own life if you want to you don't have to but you get to the decision is yours you can either continue being governed by your feelings because well I just don't feel like I just feel and you know I can make excuses and justifications or I can say no 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 let me be the captain of my boat and determine where I want to go next if you genuinely want to go somewhere in your life well, go there. Don't just dream about it. Start today and make an action plan. When we come back, we'll go even deeper. I hope that's, um, that's a word of encouragement and a, and a message of hope in a season of darkness. If you are still breathing, there is still hope. Don't give up. There's work to be done. In Jesus' name, amen.